hosts of Common Sense Investing have been helping their clients and listeners make sense of the markets for nearly three decades. Using a conservative, diversified, value-oriented approach to investing, they strive to make you a better educated, well-informed investor. And now here's your host, Eric Whiteman. Last week, the market acted like a time machine, whisking us back to the beginning of July. For rounding's sake, let's just say four months of gains have evaporated. Most of this blast to the past comes courtesy of a deterioration in the U.S.-China trade talks, and most certainly because of the spike in interest rates. I spent a good portion of the last two shows talking about interest rates, so I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it today. If you missed those shows, let me give you a brief recap, and you can always go back later and give them a listen. I think interest rates can go a lot higher than what the market is expecting or pricing in. They seem convinced that rates wouldn't go over 3%. And when rates spiked and the market wasn't expecting it, well, the market doesn't like to be surprised. And this pullback is what you get. As a quick refresher, your savings and investment dollars are always looking for their best alternative. And for a long time, your safer type of investments, and I put safer in quotes here, things like CDs, treasuries, municipal bonds, when those types of investments yield diddly squat, that's the technical term for nothing or close to nothing, then investors really didn't have much of a choice. Most people can't retire on 1%. At 1%, you're losing purchasing power every year because of inflation. Now that rates have gone up and things actually have a little yield to them, well, maybe the choice isn't so obvious as it was before. So here are three key takeaways. One, in reality, from a a historical standpoint, those safer type of investments still, still aren't yielding all that much. So I don't think they pose any serious threat to equities at this point, but we are headed in that direction. Number two, I think the economy can withstand higher interest rates. They're still very low. And my guess is higher rates don't become restrictive to the economy until they're closer to 4%. So we have a ways to go. Number three, even as rates go up, stocks can fare pretty well, especially things like the financials, industrials, and healthcare. Thank you and welcome to this edition of Common Sense Investing. I'm your host, Eric Whiteman, partner here at the XML Financial Group. If you want to learn more about us, well, visit our website. It's xmlfg.com. Once again, it's xmlfg.com. Yes. Interest rates are a concern, but at the moment, I seem to be more worried about the internal health of the market. I'm not a market timer by any means, but you do need to pay attention to this stuff. We came into this week way oversold. I think we were down seven out of eight trading days. Don't quote me on that. But you would have expected a nice bounce off the bottom. And what I saw at the beginning of this week It's been a little unconvincing. I look at the broad market and typically it leads the popular averages, the S&P and the Dow, by about three to six months. 
And last week, the broader market got even worse. We had 870 companies on the New York Stock Exchange hit new 52-week lows versus 649 the week before. Before I can get real constructive on the market, I'm going to need to see that turnaround. I can't keep seeing the new low list expanding, although in the meantime, it is a good place to start looking for values. Another piece to this is last Thursday, last Thursday was the seventh time this year where downside momentum overwhelmed the upside by more than 10 to 1. And we haven't had a single session where the upside volume exceeded the downside volume by 10 to 1. Typically, a bottom comes when you have this 10 to 1 upside volume. And I'd actually like to see more than just one day of it. And while I'm on the subject, I'd also like to see people get more pessimistic about the market. Yes, people have gone from optimistic to cautious, but I'd like to see some broad-based pessimism, you know, blood in the street type stuff. All that is just reading of the tea leaves. It's anybody's guess as to what the market does in the short term. Anything can happen. So there is a difference between market forecasting and investment strategy. As I said, the future is unknowable and it's rarely prudent to position portfolios on necessarily uncertain forecasts. Even though I'm constructive on the economy and the markets over the longer term, I still want to be positioned conservatively in stocks, bonds, and cash. Uh, What's the right amount? Well, that depends on who you are. Each person is unique. I believe it's absolutely imperative that you have a good, sound, written financial plan in place. That way, you know what types of returns you need to achieve to get to where you want to be, and you don't get pulled off course when volatility picks up. I think this volatility hangs around for a while. If you have a plan and you know what you need to achieve, then you'll have an idea of what the right asset allocation is for you. Let's step away. Let's take a break. And when we come back, I'm going to give you the top five stocks that are on my wish list. This is Eric Whiteman, and we are back in just a moment. You've worked hard. You've saved and invested. Now you want to make sure all your hard work pays off. Now's the time to start planning for that future. Hi, this is Eric Whiteman of the XML Financial Group. No two people have the same goals and values. We can help you craft a framework for making a lifetime of smart financial decisions that's right for you. Now's the time to get the advice you deserve. Call us at 301-770-5234. Thank you and welcome back to Common Sense Investing. I'm your host, Eric Whiteman. Let's jump right back into it. When the market gives us opportunities, we want to make sure we take advantage of them. I always have a running list of stocks I want to buy and about half of the things on my list never get bought because I just can't get them at the right price, but I do keep a list running. We want to buy good businesses at the right price. I always say I'm trying to buy a dollar for 50 cents with really high quality businesses. Well, you rarely get that opportunity because 
Well, they're high quality businesses and you're going to have to pay up a little more for them than you would for the ones that aren't as good. With where we are now in the business cycle, I want to focus on building my core. I want to make sure that it's solid. As I said, I think we're going to see much more volatility and I don't want to lose sleep at night. If you're losing sleep at night because of one of your stocks, well, you should probably not own it. So at the top of my list are going to be the real high quality businesses. Maybe in the next couple of weeks, I'll do a show on the flyers, the more growthy, riskier type businesses. You know me as the the cheap value guy, but I do believe that you should have some growth type stocks in your portfolio. But today I'm going to give you the top five on my shopping list with a focus on quality. First on the list, that's right, you guessed it, Berkshire Hathaway, symbol BRK, and we buy the B share, so it's BRKB. This is one that I'm willing to pay up for the most because it's just a great business, or rather a collection of businesses run by Warren Buffett, one of the greatest, if not the greatest investor of all time. During my annual outlook, the one that I do in January, I usually put up a chart that shows Berkshire's growth going back to the early 60s. And it shows that the stock has outperformed the S&P 500 by something like 9% a year on average. And that's for more than 50 years. But what about recently? How's it done? Glad you asked. Berkshire's earnings per earnings per share have grown at about 25% per year for the last five years and at about 24% a year on average for the last 10 years. That's just phenomenal. If you don't know Berkshire, you can basically think of it as being three separate divisions or having three separate divisions. They have the insurance business things like Geico. They own more than 70 other uh, businesses like Dairy Queen, Fruit of a Loom, Hellsberg Diamonds. And then they have a huge portfolio of publicly traded companies, companies like Apple, Coca-Cola, Kraft Heinz. And I'll add that they have well over $100 billion in cash. The way I think you should value Berkshire isn't on earnings, isn't on P.E. ratio, it's on intrinsic value. That's the best way to do it. But an alternative would be book value. Book value typically understates what the business is worth, but I think it'll work. According to Value Line, book value for next year should be about $153. And again, I'm talking about the B shares here. Warren Buffett is willing to buy back shares at about 1.3 times book value. So if one of the greatest investors of all time is willing to buy back his own stock at 1.3 times book value, well, so am I. $153 book value at 1.3 times gives me a buy price of, let's just say, let's just call it 200. Right now, the stock is about 209. So it's not that far away. Heck, I'm even willing to buy half of it now because it's so high quality. That's Berkshire, symbol BRKB. Second on the list would be Wells Fargo, 
symbol WFC. I know, I know, some of you are shaking your head out there, and I don't blame you. Over the last few years, management has done practically everything they could to ruin the business, and we all know the issues. If you think that over the next couple of years, management can wake up every morning and tie their shoes correctly and not get into any more trouble, then I think you'll end up owning a bargain. Wells released earnings here last week, and they look pretty good. Noisy, but pretty good. Return on tangible common equity was over 14%. Earnings were up 30% year over year. Credit quality was good. Retention rates were good. The underlying business looks healthy to me. Again, if they can get past their legal and operating woes, maintain their expense discipline, and return anywhere near their former profitability, then I think this stock is undervalued. Right now, it's trading at about 10 times earnings, which is a discount to their peers, and it pays a better than 3% dividend while you're waiting. And they're buying back a good amount of stock. I think this is a case where the potential reward outweighs the risk, and I'm a buyer under $54. That's symbol WFC, Wells Fargo. Since Canada just legalized the recreational use of marijuana and the pot stocks are all the rage now, let's talk about a real drug stock, Johnson & Johnson, symbol J&J. Again, this is a core type holding for me, so I'm willing to pay up a bit more for it. You know Johnson & Johnson. They're the world's largest and most diversified healthcare company on the planet. And like Berkshire, They have three different pieces to the business. They have the drugs, the medical devices and diagnostics, and then they have the consumer business. I love that they have that diversity there. The drugs and the devices represent close to 80% of sales and drive the majority of cash flow for the firm. They too just released their earnings and they look pretty darn good to me. Sales growth was up 6% led by the drug division, which was up 8%. Consumer products were up 6% and the devices were the laggard here. They were only up 3%. Now, this is a steady eddy type of company and they have a number of new drugs coming to market that are going to help them out over the next couple of years. The stock is trading at about 17 times next year's earnings or what my earnings guess is. And I'm cheap. You know that. I'd prefer to wait till it trades under 16 times earnings, which I'll break it down for you. That equates to about $130 a share. That's where I'm a buyer, $130. Another one is Pepsi, symbol PEP. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, and it was because their earnings had came out, and it was the last earnings for the CEO who's retiring. And I tell you, I think she she just did a remarkable job during her tenure at the company. They beat on both revenue and earnings, which is the 10th consecutive quarter that they delivered positive earnings surprise, uh, delivered a positive earnings surprise, excuse me. Earnings per share came in at $1.75, which was up 18% year over year. But currency had a negative headwind for them and they adjusted their numbers downward going forward. And I think this might be a story that we hear more of as this earnings seasons progress. You also saw North American beverages 
their operating profit declined by 14%. And that was because of increased transportation costs and higher commodity costs. All in all, I didn't think the numbers were all that terrible. Now, the stock is trading at about $107 with a pretty healthy dividend. If you look forward, I think they earn about $6.05 next year, which means you're paying about 18 times forward earnings for it now. If I could buy it at 17 times, then I'd be willing to nibble, meaning I'd buy half. And then I'd buy the other half. Well, at 17 times earnings, that would be at about $105. 17 times earnings for a high quality company like Pepsi isn't outrageous. Yes, they may continue to face some headwinds from input prices and in currency, but over the long term, those types of things correct themselves. Again, I'd be a buyer of Pepsi for the really long term, not a quick flip, but I'd be a buyer at $105. And while you're owning it, you'll be collecting a 3.4% dividend, you know, the one that they've been raising for the last 46 years in a row. They've grown that dividend on average of about 8% a year for the last five years and about 9.5% on average for the last 10 years. Another one, CarMax, symbol KMX, and it's trading right around $70 now. And this one looks way oversold to me. CarMax has a pretty unique business model. They've, there's been a few good companies out there that have tried to replicate what CarMax has done, but they haven't quite been able to pull it off. CarMax is the nation's largest used car retailer. They go out and they buy used cars, they recondition them, and then they sell them in the used car markets, mostly in the retail market. The cars that don't meet the, the CarMax standard, well, they get sold off through wholesale auctions. And the mix is about 85% retail and about 15% is wholesaling. And there are a number of reasons why I like CarMax. One, when you walk into a CarMax, you get this transparent car buying experience. Now, I hate going to a car dealer because I'm afraid I'm going to spend hours there with a salesperson who's constantly telling me, well, I'll go back and check and see what we can do. I'll talk to my manager. I like the experience. I know when I go into a CarMax, it's pretty straightforward and easy. There's no endless haggling over price. You have a quick trade in. Uh, you get the appraisal and they make an offer on every uh, on every appraisal. It's just a completely different experience. And I think it's a superior business model when you compare it to the competitors. The second reason is Right now, they're in about 55 U.S. markets, and, they're, and they estimate that they have about 5% of the market share in the markets they serve. So that says to me, there's a lot of opportunity to expand. I think they're only halfway built out across the U.S. So they could maybe double their locations over the next several years. They only have 3% of the total used car market. And they're capturing an ever-increasing share of the markets that they're in. The third reason is they're profitable in every market they're in. That's important. You want to be profitable in everything you do. They're profitable in every market they're in. So they have a replicable, scalable 
model. And of course, there's always the valuation part of it too. I think they'll earn $5 this coming, uh, $5 per share this coming year. And with the share price at about $70 now, that means that they're trading at about 14 times earnings. They haven't been this cheap since 2009, 2010, during the depths of the financial recession. Over the last five years, earnings have grown at better than 13.5% per year on average. And the reason they're growing their earnings like this is because they have a better operating system that's built to leverage its their unique information advantage to buy and sell at profitable prices. Basically, they know more about their business and markets than anybody else does. I think CarMax is a buy right here. I think FedEx looks cheap too, but I've run out of time today. With all these, you have to do your own research and see if they make sense for you. We'll be back next Wednesday. Until then, remember, it's just as important to protect your assets as it is to grow them. Okay, you've listened to the show. Now it's time for the really good stuff. So listen up. It's the disclosures. The things I talked about during the show, well, they're just my opinion and may or may not necessarily be those of the XML Financial Group. Don't construe this as personalized advice or a solicitation to buy or sell a security. No, no. You should consult your own financial advisor to see if it's appropriate for you. It's also not a substitute for tax or legal advice. I'd suggest you get someone who's qualified in these areas so you can get the advice you deserve. When you're talking about asset allocation, diversification, rebalancing, they don't guarantee better results and they don't eliminate the risk of losses. In investing, there are no guarantees. Just because you use these strategies doesn't mean you'll outperform someone or something who doesn't. XML Financial LLC is an independent registered investment advisor.